Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. A little bit of intro for our text this morning before we stand for the reading of it. A couple things got me thinking about the passage we're going to go to. We're going to go to John chapter 17. Um, First of all, this is Jesus' prayer for the church. And it's Mission Sunday, and so I thought it'd be good to uh, settle into this prayer that he leaves the apostles and those who would be building the church with. And then second of all, you're going to hear echoes of Michael's sermons on heaven and uh, Michael's sermon on heaven and hell in this one. Um, and so there'll be some echoes of things from last week. And it's always good to brush up against similar things so that they start to sink in. But Jesus' prayer in John 17 was delivered to his Father in heaven just before he was crucified for the sins of the world. So this is one of his concluding prayers before he dies. Um, In this prayer, he is not agonizing that he will be going away. He has plans in place for that, but he is agonizing that... uh, Along these lines, that his disciples will be left anxious, worried, and wondering. Those who would carry on the work after him. As he said in the sermon before this prayer, it is better that he go away that the, so that the Spirit will come to be with them. He indeed will never leave or forsake his followers. The Spirit will guide them into all truth and through all the trials that would be coming for those first followers, particularly the apostles, and then coming for all believers down through the ages, those trials that the Lord brings to us. This prayer, then, is a departing prayer to build up the confidence of his church. It's to build up the confidence of his church. Within a few short days, Jesus will be risen from the dead. He will have taken his his seat at the right hand of the Father. But just before all those prophesied events take place, he makes this final prayer. He is entrusting his people to his Father, promising to send the Holy Spirit. He's closing out his time with the apostles in this sort of benediction or this good word, this encouragement, um, a heartfelt prayer. And so let's read the whole chapter, chapter 17, remembering its context. The stakes are high because the fullness of time is near. Okay, So let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 17. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave, me, gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. 
For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that, they may, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in, your, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you, have, that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. There's one phrase in this prayer that I want to look at, verse 13. Jesus says, but now I come to you that, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So on that night, when he prayed this prayer in the hearing of his apostles, he stated that he was speaking it out into the world for a purpose. Jesus spoke the prayer, the apostles heard it, and recorded it for all time in the inspired word for a purpose. And that purpose is stated here. It's this, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. That they may have my joy full in themselves. Jesus, the lover of souls, is concerned that we might have joy. That we might have joy, that we might be free from the anxieties that so easily demand all of our, all of the time we're awake 
and half the time when we're asleep. The apostles would shortly have much to be anxious about. They would see their teacher, their rabbi, suffering on the cross. And as you know, that was so much for the apostles to bear that they were scattered. They left Jesus. Other than John, none of the apostles are there to see their Savior die. Faith now has to come alive in these apostles. A remembrance of everything Jesus had taught to them had, come, had to come alive. They had to remember the things that he had said. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, understanding and faith and joy did come. But those anxieties came upon them as they come upon us. Jesus prays this prayer so that the words might stick might lodge themselves in the, the minds of the apostles, that they may know what is coming for them, right? That they might take courage in the midst of a world that is going to hate them and that will want to kill them just as they killed Jesus. But Jesus is praying this prayer so that in the midst of all of that, they might still have joy. Jesus wants them to have joy in the midst of a fallen, God-hating, sinful, perverse, broken, lustful, lawless world. Is that possible? Well, we all know what joy is. Joy is, is happiness down in the deep recesses of the heart. It is rejoicing. It is that state of mind and heart when we spontaneously break out into song. Right? It is children on Christmas morning. It's Esther every morning. Singing. But don't get me wrong. It's, it's, not, it's not simply a mindless giddiness. Joy is profoundly strong because, as we'll talk about in a minute, it comes... It comes through trials, and it, and it comes because of trials. Right? Joy is knowing that if God is for us, it doesn't matter who is against us. Right? That is a part of joy. And so trials, trials prove that truth. Um, joy was what I felt more, more than anything else when I was converted. Um, when God opened my eyes to the reality and beauty and strength and compassion of Jesus Christ, I was, honestly, I was a bit giddy, really. And, if, and that was from dark and cynical artist to a giddy follower of Christ in a matter of days. Um, I was joyful. I sang, I looked at the sky, and I praised God. I prayed with thankfulness. I enjoyed things that I had never enjoyed before like other people. Um, I smiled. I smiled. I was, I was not alone, right? And I had this glorious thought that God was for me and not against me. That I had bowed my knees to his son, and now God was for me and not against me. Me and I was truly joyful, a fruit of the Spirit, no doubt. Many of you have had that same experience, haven't you? Uh, you think back upon the time when you first came to faith, or maybe it wasn't when you first came to faith. It was, 
Um, it was another time that was just marked with incredible refreshment, incredible rejoicing in the Lord. Um, we heard some similar testimonies to my testimony in our recent membership interviews, and it's, it's so encouraging to hear, to hear that. The, uh, the heater's about to kick on because that just got noisy. It's my theory. Just test me on this. About two seconds, the heater will kick on. So, so we have these experiences of joy. We have sometimes profound, sometimes just refreshment in the midst of it. But what has happened since then is the question. What has happened since then? Where has the joy gone? Why is it that we find ourselves often crying out like, like David in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation? Where is it? In David's case and in, in ours, we know why the joy has ebbed and flowed. Most often it is because we've, we've given into temptation, we've sinned, or we've been sinned against, and that takes away our joy. We have struggled through a fallen world, all those good lessons we learn you know, when we read the book of Ecclesiastes. Our trust in God has, has risen and fallen, and with it our joy is continually being, it seems, replaced with anxiety. Sin, ours and others, crush our joy. Trials, physical illness, family fights, persecution, the cares, just the cares, the annoying cares of the world, right? They crush our joy. Another thing that crushes our joy is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. We could call it worldly-mindedness. It crushes our joy. So sin, trials, and forgetfulness. Those things can, can fight against our joy. When it comes to sin, the only way to navigate back to joy is to repent. So often, brothers and sisters, we attempt to deal with our sins by arguing with God about whether or not they are sins. We blame our sins on God and his providence. We blame our sins on others um, or blame our sins on the sins of others. If she hadn't said that, I would be doing this or I wouldn't be doing that. We reason with ourselves, has God really said that I can't shout at my children? And in arguing with God like Job, the anxiety will build and build and build until God says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? When we begin to argue, argue with God, that's what God says back to us through the book of Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Rather than argue with God, confess Soften yourself. Confess your sins to him and ask him to grant you repentance. Confess your sins to your spouse, to your elders, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and, and then see what comes of it. Just test me in this. See what comes from unburdening yourselves of sins. Joy will come from it. Joy will come from it because a burdened conscience, a conscience burdened with sin is devoid of joy. When it comes to trials, God's word does not speak in riddles, does it? It's very clear. Typically when trials come, our faith retreats 
our questions of God multiply and our joy is quickly replaced with anxiety. We have a tendency to see trials as competition with our joy when God actually teaches us that we are to consider our trials as opportunities for joy. We see our trials in competition, but God has given them to us so that we might have a supernatural joy in the midst of it. That is distinctively Christian teaching. Christians are the only ones who can rejoice because of trials. The worldling hates trials and will do everything he can to avoid them, to avoid pain, to avoid any discomfort. Christians not only rejoice in the midst of suffering, but they consider trials as reasons to rejoice. How is that? Well, they know what trials are. They know God is in them. They know that trials are not just bad luck or cruel fate. They know that God intends to give his love to you through that trial. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yay, right? It should be yes. It should be yes to be like Jesus Christ. The Christian knows that trials being, you know, being called a fool for believing in Jesus, getting laid off from work because you, you, you shared your faith, um, getting news from a doctor that is not good, not good at all. The Christian knows that these things are from God. And for a glorious purpose. It's for our perfection. It's for our building up. It's to make us in this life just this tiny bit useful. Because outside of that, left to ourselves to go our own path, we're just a a waste of time. Read biographies of great Christian missionaries and pastors. The one thing that marks all of them is that they suffered. They suffered. They suffered, yes, just physically, but they also suffered for their faith. They suffered because they followed Christ. And they would all acknowledge that their suffering was from the hand of God. They suffered deaths of loved ones. They suffered horrible diseases and torture. They suffered discomfort on a daily basis. They suffered all kinds of the loss of friends. They suffered humiliating persecution. They wandered about on this earth as those for whom the world is not worthy. And Jesus said of, of Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Not exactly the pep talk for the call into the vocational ministry. The apostle, after they were flogged, and their backs were bleeding, rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer suffer shame for his name. Flogs, their, their backs were flogged and were bleeding, and they are rejoicing because it was for Jesus' name. Scripture is amazingly consistent in this regard. Trials are an opportunity for joy. 
rather than an opportunity for dour, depressed, anxious moping. That's what they are given to you for. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Rome. We are to exalt in our tribulations. Just stop and think about that. We're to exalt in our tribulations. Exalt, you know. Release the balloons. Suffering's going to begin. We're to exalt in our tribulations knowing that Tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We're to exalt in our tribulations because it's a sign of God's love being poured out into us. So we consider trials and joy not simply because we know that one day they will be over, though God will give us the persevering strength to go through them, though that certainly is a part of hope, but because they demonstrate that God is paying attention to us, that he is honing us, that he is disciplining us, that he is making us ready for the next life. Ready, he's, he's... He's making us like his son, Jesus Christ. And God the Father loves his son. And so he's making us like his son, Jesus Christ. Even that Jesus Christ who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We, as Paul says in Philippians, are completing in this life what is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. When the next trial comes upon you, or, or how about the one you're in the middle of right now? Don't see that as an opportunity for the flesh, but see it as an opportunity for joy. For joy. Understand it to be the very thing that, that gives you opportunity to be a witness to the power and glory of Jesus Christ. Don't immediately go into crisis mode. Go into joy mode. Go into rejoicing mode. Right? Singing mode. Christians can do this. And and Christians alone can do this. We can rejoice when and, and precisely because we are plopped down right in the midst of the flames. Joy is ours in Jesus Christ. We possess his joy. It is. As, as the prayer in John 17 indicates, it is his joy. He gives what is his to his people. He is sharing his joy. So our sin can crush our joy. Our trials can crush our joy. It's also, you know, I also say that it's forgetfulness that often crushes our joy. And what I mean by that is this. We forget so easily what we have in our salvation. We simply forget what glory we have in our salvation. We forget the power of Jesus Christ. We lose our childlike wonder of, of heaven and God. We, as Scripture puts it, set our minds on the things that are on earth rather than the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We forget what once, you know, we forget what once was our only thought. 
We forget what once filled us with joy every moment, perhaps that time when we were first converted or when we had some extraordinary mercy from him. How is that possible to forget? I mean, think of all the irrelevant facts you can remember about sitcoms. And we forget the extraordinary mercy and the joy that we had in Jesus during times of refreshment. How is it possible to forget that? Well, it is possible because Scripture is constantly exhorting us not to do that. (laughs) Scripture is telling us not to forget his benefits toward us. Let me help you set your mind on things above by first setting your mind on things below, not that are on earth but that are in hell. Perhaps your joy will be amplified when we set it in relief to the joylessness of hell, the place where all those who refuse to bow their knees to Jesus Christ, to King Jesus, will live eternally. And it's so hard to speak about hell today. So many jokes are made about it. So many people, so many supposedly orthodox theologians have denied its existence or redefined it so that it has become half or even a quarter or maybe an ounce of what it once was. But let me say that scripture teaches that hell is real. It's as real as the roof over your head. It's as real as the person sitting beside you in the pew. Think of it this way. Hell is joylessness eternal. Think of your worst day, your most despairing day, and hell is that eternally unending without hope. If our sins, our trials, our forgetfulness cause us as Christians to be joyless in this world, hell is unrelenting sin. It's permanent forgetfulness and unproductive trials. It's a completely unproductive trial, only meant to punish. Here our trials, the trials of Christians, produce an eternal weight of glory. For those in hell, the unrelenting punishment of God, their trials do not produce anything good, It simply produces more punishment and bitterness and cursing of God. It produces more and more judgment. Hell is unceasing joylessness, unceasing hopelessness, unceasing bitterness, unceasing hatred, unceasing judgment. Hell is the complete absence of any hope of joy. Again, here's how Jonathan Edwards describes it. There are none in hell but what have been haters of God, and so have procured his wrath and hatred on themselves, and there they shall continue to hate him forever. No love to God will ever be felt in hell, but everyone there perfectly hates him, and so will continue to hate him, and without any restraint will express their hatred to him, blaspheming and raging against him, while they gnaw their tongues for pain. And though they all join together in their enmity and opposition to God, yet there is no union or friendliness among themselves. They agree in nothing but hatred and the expression of hatred. They hate God and Christ and angels and saints in heaven. And not only so, but they hate each other, like a company of serpents or vipers, not only spitting out venom against God, but at one another, biting and stinging and tormenting each other. No possibility of joy ever eternally. 
forever hating and being hateful. Unrelenting, complete lack of joy or the possibility of joy ever. Now, it's very helpful to contrast your life now with eternal punishment, isn't it? It almost makes us think that our bitterness and sufferings in this life are just wee little tiny things. And they are. But honestly, contemplating hell can even make a godless man joyful. But dear brothers and sisters, we who have been included in this prayer in John 17 are to have Jesus' joy. In this life, it means rejoicing in the momentary light afflictions that God gives to each of us. Beyond that, this joy is to be made full, which I take to mean it will be made full when we get rest in that glorified state in the presence of God. That joy, that full joy must be part of the joy we know in this world. Heaven is joy eternal, unrelenting joy. Again, from Edwards. Here's how he paints this picture. But oh, what rest is there in that world which the God of peace and love fills with his own gracious presence? And in which the Lamb of God lives and reigns, filling it with the brightest and sweetest beams of his love. Where, nothing, where there is nothing to disturb or offend. And no being or object to, to be seen. That is not surrounded with perfect friendliness and sweetness. Where the saints shall find and enjoy all that they love and so be perfectly satisfied, where there is no enemy and no enmity, but perfect love in every heart and to every being, where there is perfect harmony among all the inhabitants, no one envying another, but everyone rejoicing in the happiness of every other, where all their love is humble and holy and perfectly Christian without the least carnality or impurity, where love is always mutual and reciprocated to the full, in all this in the garden of God, in the paradise of love, where everything is filled with love and everything conspires to promote and kindle it and keep up its flame and nothing interrupts it, but everything has been fitted by an all-wise God for its full enjoyment under the greatest advantages ever. And all too where the beauty of the beloved object shall never fade and love shall never grow weary nor decay, but the soul shall more and more rejoice in love forever. Oh, what tranquility will there be in such a world as this? And who can express the fullness and blessedness of this peace? What a calm is this? How sweet and holy and joyous. So in this life, we have trials to give us joy because they are making us like Jesus. And in the life to come, our joy will be made full because we will have been made like Jesus. And we will be with Jesus. No more departure for which he must prepare us and encourage us and for which he must pray like John 17. In heaven, there's no point where John 17 comes and he's sending us out of heaven. Nah, it'll be done. It'll be rest. No, we'll simply be at home with Jesus. No more reason for us to have any anxieties. 
joy eternal in the presence of God, but that eternal joy bleeds into this life for the Christian, right? Right? That joy is bleeding into this life. Is it? We live in a sort of already and not yet status, even in regards to our full joy. The Spirit lives within His people, revealing the truths of God and of eternal life. How can there not be an extraordinary amount and quality of joy in the Christian life? Even in the midst of, you know, even in the midst of my, what I, one of my friends called the dark night of the soul I was experiencing in March, April, and May this year. Even in the midst of that, this past spring, I did not lose sight of the fact that God was there and that he was good. I did not lose sight of that fact. I had joy in the midst of what the world would have told me was extreme depression. I was joyful. I was joyful in not having energy to contemplate sin. I was joyful even in that. And so we're, we Christians are a paradox to the unbelieving. We rejoice in suffering. We understand that the last will be first and the first last. We give up now so that we might receive when we die. All goes to show you that this world is not our home. Where Jesus is, is where the fullness of joy will be consummated. I'll close with this passage from 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. See how joy is wrapped up with trials there? How they come together. That joy is wrapped up in those trials. That affliction that's on you or is coming is, is a means for your joy in Jesus Christ and also your hope for the fullness of joy coming in the life to come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus and the glorious work that he did in this in this world. Father, that he condescended to to be born of a woman, to live under the law. Father, to, to be raised and disciplined by, by ordinary parents. Father, to, to, to go through this life without sin 
obeying every word and every command that you gave to him. Father, that you gave him the faith necessary to overcome those temptations in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, that he was was willing even to go to the cross. And Father, we know why. Because he had joy set before him. And so, Father, our, our, our Savior, your Son, has given us the example of what it means to undergo trial and through it to have our joy increased. May our obedience to you in the midst of trial lead us to uh, a clear conscience, to joy in you by the Spirit, to um, joy simply in the knowledge that we are pleasing our God in heaven. Oh, Father, we pray that you would work in us this kind of joy, the joy that is a foretaste of the eternal joy, the unending joy we'll have in heaven. Forgive us for all the anxieties that wash away that joy. Forgive us for all the the sins that we have committed that have washed away our joy. God, I pray that we would protect our joy. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.